This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome again to my show, Searching for Integrity. <clears throat> Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. I am the author of Embracing the Abyss, John Smith, that's me, author, and um, it's about how your abyss becomes a portal to your soul. And in that process, we have the uh, blurb on the book's cover that reads a true story of unknowingly becoming a part of a fraud scandal, receiving a presidential pardon, and being surprised by a spiritual awakening. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I am the guy with the presidential pardon. Today, I'm going to uh, read... Chapters um, 9 beginning with chapter 9 that's how we're going to work it and I will correct myself as we go along when I sometimes my mouth gets dry and I need some water so I pause if, if there is a pause it's me getting the swallow thanks So let's begin. Chapter 9, DRPI, Drippy. From August 1983 to September 1986, I served in various positions at Vernon Savings and Loan, being as a vice president, excuse me, beginning as a vice president and ending as its chief operating officer. During this time, my duties included establishing internal procedures for lending. I developed the borrower's loan guide, which established Vernon's procedures for making loans and processing loans internally. In mid to late 1984, Vernon was experiencing certain difficulty with assets owned by its subsidiaries, one of them being known as Dondi Residential Properties, DRPI. The Drippy Project, DRPI, included various real estate partnerships, condominium projects in raw land in Texas, Florida, Louisiana, and California. Although sales of condominiums had begun to decline in 1983 and 1984, Drippy was able to package the projects in a manner that would boost the capital equity of Vernon Savings. But they were becoming problem projects, and Drippy would soon face audit write-downs on the values of the assets, which would result in losses for DRPI, Drippy. The losses would then flow up to Vernon Savings, the parent. 
it was my understanding that sales of the Drippy projects would be to Don Dixon's stable of borrowers, as it was put, as he called it for a lot for a sales price equal to the cost on Drippy's books. I was responsible for seeing that the Drippy properties were sold on terms that would cause the sales to be in compliance with FAST 66, recognition of gains and sales of real estate. I prepared several memos containing the rules for these sales and circulated them to the other members of Vernon Savings staff that were working on the Drippy sales. Don Dixon's actual scheme, as I later found out, was to arrange phony sales of drippy projects to mustache buyers to avoid write-downs. Dixon and certain other officers would arrange the sales to certain preferred borrowers of Vernon Savings. These sales were documented to appear genuine when, in fact, they were phony. A group of borrowers, I should stop here for a moment, I found out about what was going on when I began going through boxes working for the FBI. That's when I figured it out. As a group of borrowers did exist at Vernon Savings who had developed a preferred status, these borrowers were hand-selected by Dixon to purchase the projects. The borrowers who participated in the Drippy scheme could be eligible for future loans from Vernon Savings. If a customer did not participate in the Drippy scheme, the customer would not be given much consideration for future loans or for renewal of loans that came due. After Dixon bought the SNL, Woody, the president of Vernon Savings, he became the president of Vernon Savings, Woody did. He didn't take long for Woody to become busy with Dixon's deal, so Junior from Vernon was appointed the new president and moved to Dallas. Woody became Vernon's chairman of the board. Junior was thrilled to be the president of Vernon Savings. He liked the bright lights and the big cities, the jets and the trips. He just couldn't get enough. He really went to his head. Junior always carried a couple of hundred dollars in his pocket to entertain the ladies he began or might meet on the road. I liked Junior. He was a likable guy, but Junior always had a drinking problem, always. He drank to get drunk. That was no middle. There was no middle. In fact, a lot of people who worked for Vernon Savings had drinking problems. Drippy sold the projects under the scheme for the amount that the Drippy and Vernon Savings had invested in the project, as dictated by Dixon. These projects could not be sold on the open market for the price Dixon dictated. Many of the sales of the properties were made at a price that exceeded the appraised value of the property. <clears throat> for those properties sold at a price in excess of the appraised value at the time, additional loans were made on an unsecured basis so that the full sales price of the drippy property could be loaned to the borrower. The loan documentation called for interest on the drippy loans to be due semi-annually. However, the drippy borrowers understood that they would not have to actually pay 
any interest to Vernon Savings on these drippy loans, and they would be provided with another vehicle, such as another loan or another entity from which to make the interest payment. When the interest actually came due, another scheme was concocted that in reality allowed Vernon Savings to fund the interest payments to itself. Without any regard for the stated rules of compliance, a proper recognition of gains on sales, Dixon had secretly structured the Dippery sales. Fantasy partnerships or syndications, which held interest in certain drippy properties, were created by Vernon Savings and its affiliates. Dixon's scheme was that these fantasy partnerships would sell their drippy assets to borrowers in a repurchase of the drippy property. Unsecured loans were initially omitted from the loan closing statements. Sorry, they were intentionally omitted from the loan closing statements, so the federal examiners would not notice that the total loans were in excess of the appraised values. I'm glad I had no part in that either, except to try and get them to do it the right way, but they would never do that. Chapter 10. I was told this is called the Phantom, this chapter. I was told that Dixon's deal guys, Dixon's stable of borrowers, were all wealthy with large amounts of cash in the bank and large amounts of equities and so forth. I figured they would have had to be wealthy in order to do these things. What I found out later was that most of them didn't have anything. They were looking to Dixon to take care of them. While Dixon manipulated them, taking care of himself, no matter what kind of a deal they did, he would give them an, an indemni- excuse me, indemnification letter, which said that if anything ever happened, Dixon would indemnify them 100%. Get your deal money back. The promises by Dixon turned out to be worth nothing. Absolutely zero. They were worthless. And the Phantom was an engineer who lived in Florida. He was involved in one of the savings and loans there, probably Big Blue in St. Pete, and was introduced to Dixon. He had a lot of energy and a pretty good wit. He was not a big guy, about 5'8", 140 pounds would be my guess. He was described by the Dallas secretaries as funny, sneaky, and not a sharp dresser. Dixon hired him to do what Dixon wanted him to do. He had no objections to anything. Later, the FBI would describe him as having no conscience whatsoever. The Phantom became Dixon's anointed. I recall a time right after my senior year in high school, my friend William and I heard about a party over in the Woodrow Wilson High School District. Pajama party, as they used it to call them in those days, and we were interested in checking it out. William and I had either dated or considered all the girls from our own high school, so we always were looking around for girls that went to other high schools. When we arrived, there were a lot of people gathered in front of the house. As we were walking across the front yard of the house next door, 
we were told to leave. We left, waited a minute or so, and then said to each other, why are we letting these people do, tell us what to do? So William and I turned around and headed back to the party. And all of a sudden, six or eight guys lined up forming a wall in front of us about 15 to 20 yards away. They were large guys, a bunch of football players who said, we don't want you here at this party. We replied, we're not going to hurt anybody or anything. And they said, we don't want you here. In so many words, they were saying, we don't want you messing with our women. It was like a bull moose standoff. I think a few of them wanted to paw at the ground and blow smoke out of their nostrils. Then this little guy standing behind the row of big guys appeared. He was jumping up to see who we were and what was going on. And every time he jumped, you could barely see his head between the bigger necks and taller shoulders of the football players. <clears throat> when he jumped, he would say, go away, go away. We don't want you here. Then he'd jump up again. We're going to kick your ass if you come over here and try to take our women. One day at the office, there were some people talking about being from Dallas. The Phantom said he was from Dallas and he had gone to high school at Woodrow Wilson. Boom. And that's when I connected with his voice. Guess who the jumping jack turned out to be? It was the Phantom. The Phantom was the guy at Vernon Savings that you could never find when you needed him. I hung the moniker on him and everybody else called him that too. One minute you would see him in his office and the next minute, he would just disappear. He would disappear all day and half the next day. You couldn't find him anywhere. Later, I learned that his cousin, another outside buyer type that Dixon brought in to try and help save the ship, would meet the Phantom at around 9.30 or 10 every morning. They would disappear and both go get drunk. My guess is they could no longer deal with what they were involved in and couldn't find a way to get out. Chapter 11. <clears throat> Christmas, 1985. On a windy fall afternoon in 1985, I sat across from Dixon. His spacious antique desks, elevated by a four-inch high stage for the high priest throne effect. Feeling unusually comfortable, I normally shook on the inside when I was around him. I proceeded to tell him that because I had corporately survived longer than any other executive, I was likely to be the one day, someday, to write the book. I don't recall my visit having a special purpose. The few one-on-one -on -one meetings with him over the years usually had a definite purpose, like finding a way to prevent his wife's design company's checking account from getting overdrawn. I described for him that during the past five years, I had been the corporate piano player, daily ducking and dodging the bullets and felled many another. My longevity was due to my minding my own business and quietly playing on. I had seen many execs come and just as many go, like the saloon cowboys in a Western 
an old western. Some were outdrawn fair and square, and some got it otherwise. Me, I just kept on playing the upright, keeping my head down, staying out of the way, trying not to be noticed, searching for a profile even lower than the one I already have. Had. I won't forget the way Dixon looked at me when I told him I planned to write a book someday. It was out of character for him to show any unplanned response, but he had quickly flashed a weird-eyed look, best described as a flight or flight combination of you wouldn't dare, and you have no idea what's really going on here. I was a little nervous from catching his, this look, but when it quickly vanished, I interpreted it impatiently, meaning, are you finished yet? I have something important to take care of, big deals to do. Get out of here. In December 1985, as Christmas was nearing, there was lots of activity along the execs, including booking profits, booking loans, looking for transactions that made profits, and of course, increased the pool of the bean plan, which meant bonuses. I had watched for most of that fall as partnerships were formed to buy the properties known as the Drippy Properties. The Drippy Properties, or the Drippy Deals, were the condominium projects that were reversed, merged, two years before. Dondi Group no longer had the wherewithal to maintain the complexes on a daily cash flow basis. Shoving them up into Vernon meant that they would always be paid for. This type of transaction required the approval of the Savings and Loan Commissioner of the state of Texas. In the fall of 1985, the Dallas effort was to package and sell the drippy properties to individuals thought to be members of Dixon's stable of borrowers. Raleigh, an ex-football player from the 1950s and a former partner of Dixon's in the civil single-family home business known as Raldon. They were in business together years ago. He was put in charge of this task. Raleigh was built like a pulling guard, probably the position they played at SMU. As he ambled down the hallway, you would sometimes see his hand and shoulder hitting the wall. Dixon put Raleigh in charge of getting appraisals for all the properties. I never met the appraiser, but he appeared to have done an excellent, exceptional job. Our played on exceptional were played on an exceptional role in getting Dixon the values that he wanted. Originally, those properties were being packaged for sale to various investor-type borrowers. who turned out to be nothing more than mustaches. In viewing all of this from my administrative post, it was my task to see that the gain recognition would be through compliance with the accounting rules, would be met the compliance and accounting rules. It never occurred to me that there there would not be a real person on the other end of the deal. There was a lot that had to be happened in order to get the deals through compliance standards, not only by me, but by lots of the other staff. The last piece of the puzzle was to get the documentation ready for the partnerships that were created for the buyers. Every day we were told, any day now, any day now, the documentation is coming. 
from either their attorneys or the loan officers. It's been reviewed and some of the buyer borrowers are actually signing, etc. But one evening, a week before Christmas, Woody came into my office, closed the door, and told me that none of the documentation was finished. He blamed Raleigh and his group for not getting that done. Woody was smart, owl-looking, wore glasses and custom dress shirts with button-down collars and monograms. He had a sincere look on his face most of the time, almost as though he had something up his sleeve, a look that he said he knew something you didn't. He had a sort of perturbed look when having his picture taken, producing a small smirk when the photographer said, smile, not a bad jerk, excuse me, not a bad smirk, just his smirk. In spite of his appearance and his looks of insincerity, insincerity, got that one finally, I actually found him to be kind and polite, not one to take advantage of people, but he was still a deal guy. My view was that Raleigh had probably done everything he could to get it done. Woody explained that he had now involved himself in the matter personally, that he would see to the completion of the documentation within a period of no more than 30 days. He then asked me to go ahead and make the interest payments on the drippy loans from another partnership that had already been created with a group in California. I was reluctant because these matters aren't supposed to be done this way. But I agreed to do what he was asking because he said he was now involved and I never thought he was untrustworthy. I never thought he was untrustworthy. I kept my reluctance to myself and would go ahead and make the advances to the partnership to pay the interest on the loans so that they would remain current on the books. The advance to the partnership was only $1.2 million. I knew that if the documentation did not come together within 30 days, as Woody said it was supposed to, I could always reverse that advance in the future. Even though I had reversing the transaction as a potential remedy, it didn't sit very well with me. But I did it because Woody had pressured me. He was a very serious man and always appeared to have a somber expression on his face. At that point, I had no reason not to trust him, and I believed him to be telling the truth. What I didn't know was that the quarterly reports were filed with the Federal Home Loan Bank Board by the people in Vernon. Because I agreed to make the partnership advance to pay the interest, $15 million in loans were classified as current and not delinquent. The next workday after Woody's visit to my office, I told MAPE, our tax guy to make the advantage, make the advance to the partnership and ask Vernon to figure out how the advance should be applied to the other unformed partnerships. He and Fur, our audit guy, took it up between themselves to make an attempt of being cunning by making payments to various Dallas branches using accounts set up by themselves. They thought it would look like the payments were made by the unformed partnership themselves. They held the branches open 
past closing, time to get it done. Timely, done timely on New Year's Eve. I didn't find out about their payment contrivance until the first week of January. I put two and two together on what had happened, called them both into my office and shut the door. They said they were going to tell me but hadn't gotten around to it. They thought they were extremely shrewd and acted as though they were due some sort of accolade. <clears throat> I berated them. You guys should not have done that. You should have left it alone with a single payment contribution to the partnership, allowing the Vernon people to allocate it as required. MAPE was a CPA who had formerly worked with Arthur Young's tax department. I always thought him to be one of the brightest guys I knew. He had a great sense of humor and was one of the first I'd heard use the phrase, that's rich. Always had a big belly laugh. He was showing signs of early balding, and I often teased him that I was going to put some chalk on and draw a line across the upper part of his forehead so we could tell where his forehead ended and his scalp began. Fur was the other CPA who worked for me. He fit the mold as the auditor type, but that was good because that's what he did a lot of internally. Since I was above them in rank, I thought that I would be in a better position than them if some crap came down around us. So to better fend off the crap, I told them I would be responsible for what they did if it came to that, which of course it did. In early spring of 1986, when I realized that there was no partnership documentation coming as Woody had promised, I called our audit partner at Arthur Young and asked him to come out for lunch. May and Fur joined us, Mape and Fur joined us, along with the senior auditor from Arthur Young at a nearby restaurant. I described to them what had happened, that we were taking care of it by reversing the transaction, which effectively negated the event. Upon hearing that had occurred, their jaws dropped and I thought for a moment they might actually choke on their food. They took it much more seriously than I had anticipated, probably because I was focusing only on this single transaction, and they were looking at it from a much larger view, immediately imagining the possibility of border ramifications, fearful of what else had been done and what would be next. Federal Home Loan Bank Board reports they were filed with Vernon, from Vernon, were something that I would say somebody, let me start over, the FHLBB, Federal Home Loan Bank Board, reports that were filed from Vernon were something that I would someday become well acquainted with. Well, that's um, an interesting chapter interesting information and you know who the good guys were and the not so good guys and the bad guys and all of this it was a, a kind of a rolling uh, pages it's amazing <clears throat> let's see if i can get this last chapter here chapter 12 1986 
The gang of four, as I call them, consisting of Woody, the commander, the Phantom, the Phantom and Mr. Political, were the top-ranking officers of the Thrift, who were removed in April of 19, uh, 1986 by the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation. Only a month later, Dixon arranged a meeting for all Dallas employees to attend at the Addison Airport hangar where Vernon's jets were kept. After Dixon's speech, in which he pronounced his permanent departure for California, we learned the other four officers relieved of their duty were not going to return either. Those of us in the know, or at least we thought that we were, knew that Dixon would not return because the empire had begun to slowly crumble at his feet. It seems like he made a reference about riding off into the sunset to create some emotional drama. But attention spans were, drawn, were dwindling in the near 100-degree heat. There was no air conditioning in the hangar, just us in the planes. At that time, we knew that the Furnace Savings was the bullseye. We knew that it was politically picked on, that it was made a target, a scapegoat, but that Vernon Savings was strong and would endure, according to Dixon. We thought the removal of the top four was rash action. We thought of ourselves as victims. As it turned out, we didn't know the enormous fraud that had been perpetrated by the chairman and the president. Filling the void, I appointed by the board of directors in Vernon to be the new chief operating officer. After the hangar meeting, we went to a hotel bar nearby for drinks. There on the steps, surrounded by an elevated bar, Mape told me I was Gunga, his Gunga Den. At first, I was confused, but I later remembered Cary Grant's 1930s movie called Gunga Den, who was the hero for saving many others until he perished in the process. By saying I was his Gunga Den, Mabel, Mape realized the mistake that I had made and was telling me I was his hero for my promise to shield him and fur. Should our world crumble, too? Gunga Den was a Rudyard Kipling hero in an epic poem, and I kept my promise. Toward the end, on every Friday in Vernon, someone would call to ask, are they there yet? This was on for a few months, people expecting the feds to come into Vernon. One Friday, about eight cloned cars pulled up and 15 or 16 agents, all dressed the same in matching calculators, briefcases, briefcases got out and went inside to begin their examination. During the summer of 1986, as the new COO, I received a lot of phone calls and visits from borrowers who were promised many things that could not be fulfilled now that Dixon and Woody were gone. I referred to those encounters as rising at to the top with an odor. No matter how many times you pressed the handle, it refused to flush. I could not foresee this situation improving in the least, so in 1986, I resigned in September from Vernon Savings and the various Dundee entities. When I left Vernon Savings, I was under the impression that I was going to have a fine career as savings and loan consultant, so I established an office, staff of three people. I had no idea in time that I'd been working for a company that had been in fraud and was responsible for massive losses. It still had not dawned on me what actually happened at Vernon Savings. On the money, Monday, following my resignation, the state of Texas arrived and took charge of Vernon Savings. Over the next months, I began hearing a lot of rumors about lawsuits and prosecutions. I was still in touch with the commander and Woody, 
as well as the other people I'd left behind at Vernon Savings. They were pondering their futures. I was angry and frustrated because of the sad condition that the SNL was in. I knew the SNL business was just as well as anybody, and I was as smart as anybody else, too. After all, look at the success of Vernon Savings. Why wouldn't I be able to go out and, and help those with sick SNLs who needed help, such as creating a new loan manual to impress the regulators? But I wasn't able to do that because paralysis had set in, causing most threats to do nothing. First of all, you must know what the rules are. You must understand there are the rules that if violated can result in going to prison. Even I left Fernand Savings, I had no idea I could go to jail. No idea. Ha, huh, are you kidding me? Me? No way. What for? What did I do? Make sure you understand what can happen. It shows my own naivety, my own unwillingness to challenge my superiors. Hey, they knew the SNL business. They'd been in the business a long time. They were weaned on the FM, the SNL business. I believed them. I trusted them. They knew what they were doing, and they never showed me that they were doing anything wrong. Why would I ever suspect they were doing wrong? We're doing so well. How can anything go so wrong? Well, that's the end of Chapter 12. And uh, I want to thank you, my uh, uh, listeners, for being part of my audience again. It's a, it's a thrill for me to read these chapters to you. It's a great story. I hope you enjoy it again. And we can do that probably for next week as well. So thanks again, listeners, and joining Searching for Integrity. So long and happy trails to all.